0: You'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your just being so good to us. And we do thank you, Lord, that we've been adopted as your children. And as a result, we can address you as truly being our father. And we know, Lord, the kind of care that you give to us because we are your children. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us, that you have spoken to us in your word. And you have given us your word that we may possess it, that we may read it, that we may, that we may understand it. And so, Father, we ask this morning, in particular, as we focus on the book of 1 Corinthians, as we look at the letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, we ask, Lord, that you would give to us understanding. But, Father, along with that, we pray that you give to us a very strong desire to to want our hearts and minds, for our whole person to be transformed continuously by your word, through your spirit. The Father, we may become like Christ in every way, that we may indeed think your thoughts after you. The Father, we be filled with your wisdom, that we may live uprightly and speak uprightly to all that we meet. The Father, we may be a blessing to others, and that our lives themselves may be blessed. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for this time together. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Father, for your spirit. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in verse 15 of chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Remember last week as we continued our trek through chapter 6, Paul was emphasizing to the believers here that our spiritual life cannot be separated from our material life, that the body is not spiritually irrelevant, that the way we use our bodies reflects the relationship that we have to Christ. And then as he spoke about freedom, we saw that true freedom does not come from permission to do everything or to do whatever you want, but that true freedom is not being enslaved by anything. Then we spent a few moments talking about our eschatological hope, which is basically our future hope that we have in Christ. And so I read you a quote from John Piper, which said, Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. And we live in light of the promises that God has given to us. So as Paul continues dealing with really sexual immorality, which kind of just jumps out at you as you read through this chapter, He begins verse 15 by asking a question. It's a question that he is assuming they know the answer to. So he's bringing it up as a way to to deal with the issue that he wants to deal with. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then we could add, so since they know this, he asks, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And then he says, certainly not. So what he wants to emphasize to them is not only the fact that our, that our bodies are not spiritually irrelevant, he does want to bring around or bring about this, us to understand the strength and the, the degrading aspect of sin, and in particular sexual sin. He really wants to drive this point home, that this is no small matter. This is of major significance. So when it comes to the sin, again remember that sometimes you may hear people say this, And it's kind of a common saying where people say, well, you know, sin is sin. And that's true and not true at the same time. So when we say that sin and sin, or maybe sometimes people say, well, all sin is the same because it's all against God. It is true. It is all against God. But there are some sins that are worse than others. First of all, just in the aspect that they have much more severe consequences. We know that. An individual can, you know, a little kid can take a, uh, one of the cookies his mom is, is making for school and lie about it and eat the cookie. And even though that's, that's sin and wrong, that's still much different from the one who, let's say, steals a car from an individual who's, you know, driving down the road. Or maybe who's someone who takes someone else's life. And so we would look at those things and, well, now yeah, there's, there's a severity there. So all sin is against God. But the Bible makes it clear, even Jesus said, there are some who do those things that are deserving of many stripes and those who do things deserving of few stripes. So there are differences. And of course, to live the Christian life is not about just trying to get rid of the real big things and hold on to the small things, as far as, well, I don't do the big sins anymore, I just do do small sins. We should never take joy in that at all, because again, we're disobeying and we're disappointing our Father in Heaven. But it is human nature for us to oftentimes diminish, I guess you would say, sins that we are much more accustomed to. We diminish the strength of certain sins because either we are around them a great deal or because we are very aware of them. Maybe perhaps we've been involved with them, and so we just kind of downplay those things. And so we we live in a culture that, there's, there has truly been an explosion. It's not really new, it's just different. Because when Paul wrote this letter, I mean, you had uh, sexual sin was, was as prominent then as it is now. You would have, it, it was not uncommon in the city of Corinth when, when it came to those who practiced prostitution and most of those who practiced prostitution were uh, basically working for various temples of various types of pagan gods. But they would be on the street not just at night, they'd be on the street in the daytime, and they would be accosting individuals. I mean, they would, they would imagine if you, if you took your, your family down to River Street, and let's just say that the prostitutes suddenly became very bold, and not only are they out in the daytime, uh, but they are coming right up to your family and offering their services, right there in front of your children, and talking in that manner. We would be appalled at that. We would we would immediately warn a, a lot of our friends. and I mean, you can't you can't go downtown anymore. You would not believe what just happened. You know, I'm with my kids, and this lady comes to my husband, and it was just nuts. And so the word would get around quick. That's what they were dealing with. That was that was just part of life. Everyone knew that 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 took place. So I don't know if if um if the sin today is is worse as far as the sexual morality and the temptation. I don't know if it's worse. It's just a different kind, different. It's by degree. We tend to think it's worse because we look at how our culture is, the word progressing is a bad word to use in this sense, but as we've seen our culture change to where how we used to approach sexual sins and and how there seemed to be kind of a a limit to it, there seemed to be certain clear boundaries that weren't crossed, and we've seen those boundaries erased. And so we're back now to a time uh, that is very similar to what was going on back in Corinth except the technology Uh, that we have is very different, and so basically makes it much more accessible to all kinds of people to where it wasn't accessible before. Most of us are aware we have seen articles, uh, we have seen TV shows and documentaries, we have heard horror stories from individuals who have given their children phones and found out that their children have been exposed to pornography uh, at a very early age, a great deal of it. Sometimes we you know we find parents that still are not quite aware of that as they should be, and, and they may say things like, "Well, but I, I I trust my children." Well, that's I'm not asking you to trust them. It's the world. Remember that that the door to their heart and minds got a handle on both sides, and they may not be trying to open the door, but there's someone else trying to open the door. The aggressive kind of advertising that we are accustomed to when it comes to various kinds of products, those. That philosophy is used by those that are peddling sexual immorality, primarily in the area of pornography, but that's that's out there. There are individuals who are trying to find ways through emails and texts and random calls, trying to find ways to lure people in. And, And they're successful at doing that. We sometimes forget this, but when it comes to this problem, it's not a small issue. Number one, it's not going to go away at all because there's way too much money involved. There's one statistic that I heard that there's, there's, you know you can always play games with statistics and sometimes make them say whatever you want them to say. But there are certain ones that they're just they are what they are, and no matter what you do, you, you can't change them. The truth is there. And one of the most mind-boggling truths uh, uh, or stats that I've ever seen is that when it comes to the porn business in America, there is more money made in the porn industry than the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball combined. It's, it's hard to even imagine what that kind of money. Because we hear now of Major League, um, or I guess of professional athletes being paid sometimes $10 million a year, $20 million a year. There are some now $40 million a year. It's hard to imagine that kind of money. And that's not one individual. That's several. And then when you begin to, to calculate all of the money that is being made by, by, these, by these sports and the sports stars and the, you know, the paraphernalia that they sell. I mean, it's just the billions of dollars. It's an, it's an incredible number. And to think that the pornography business outstrips all of them combined. And so it's not going to go away. And then there's all the other things that go along with that. There's a book I read several years ago. I think, I think the book was written about around 10 years ago. I'm not positive about that, but it was close to that. And there's, a, uh, there's been there's several crises that different sections or segments of our society has that we're not always aware of, and one of those is it was a book that was written by an individual who was a counselor on a college campus, and what they were what the individual was talking about was the number of individuals that are contemplating suicide and the number of individuals that are contemplating or that are dealing with severe what they call severe depression, uh, and things related to that all because of the attitude about what we would call immoral sexual relationships—that there's so much of that going on, and so much pressure on individuals—that there—that and it's primarily um, women, but not only them, but primarily women who come to the college campus and they get involved in with different individuals, and within a matter of, of weeks of arriving, they are broken. They are messed up psychologically. Keep in mind that when that. Most of the time, I think we can say this, when we talk about an individual being messed up psychologically, what we are saying is they're messed up spiritually. It's the same thing. It is very important for us to stop allowing the world to tell us how to view humanity. We need to believe what the Bible says. Because if we accept what the world says and say that they're they're affected and broken psychologically, then that's how we're going to approach that. It's going to be psychologically, which normally means without God. And the goal cannot be just to help them to overcome the pain and be okay with life. They are broken people, and they need to be healed, and they need Christ. We know we're all broken people, and we all need Christ, but we would say in one sense it's much more profound in in the lives of these individuals who have been abused in this way. There are many individuals who are looking to try to find a sense of belonging, trying to find a sense of importance, maybe trying to find a sense of being loved, and so they go into the the large arena of sexual immorality looking for that. And they're going to be taken advantage of by many other individuals who understand that's exactly what people are looking for, and they're going to offer a false form of that because they want what they want. And so this, this problem is pervasive in so many ways. And even though you have on one hand those who are declaring that we don't talk about it enough, there are others who think we talk about it too much and it's such a huge problem. It's one that needs to be kind of on the forefront on a really on a regular basis in our lives because it's out there, not only because it's out there, because it continues to seek to find ways to penetrate into the lives of family and the church and what we need to remember is that as long as the church has people, it's already infiltrated the church. And the way we fight that is through our relationship with Christ and understanding the gospel and understanding what Christ has done for us through the cross. We have to stop this idea that somehow that when an individual comes to Christ, it, it, fixes, the, it fixes the fact that they're now going to go to heaven. The gospel does so much more than that. That is a main part of it. That is a great part of it. Absolutely. But what Paul has been getting at is that when you and I become a believer, when we believe in the gospel, we become one with Christ. That means and also changes everything. And that's why he begins with that question that he begins with in, chapter 15, in verse 15 of chapter 6. Again, what he wants him to understand is that the union of two people involves much more than physical contact. It is a union of personalities which alters both of them. That's why in verse 16 he quotes from the Old Testament. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her because, the two, because for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul here is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When he does so, he's not affirming that a man and a prostitute are married, but to indicate the gravity of the sin. Likewise, our union with Jesus Christ should affect both us and our Savior. One cannot act without affecting the other. So here, being with a prostitute, or I guess you would say, if you broaden it out and talk about sexual immorality, in general, again, they're not inconsequential matters. That's why he adds, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He wants them to get this idea that what you do in the body or what you do with your body, you are including Christ. That's what he's doing there. That's what he's saying. Whatever you are doing with your body, you are including Christ. It affects Christ, just like a married man or a married woman. Whatever they do, even if their spouse is not present, what they do affects their spouse because they are one. They are one in every way, not just physically. And so he wants to drive that point home to them, that they don't belong to themselves. This is not just about you doing whatever you want to do because you want to do it. You need to think about your life and think about your relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality, which is just the, the real simple and best defense that we have against sexual immorality. Is just right there, just flee. There's always a way to flee, and you do it. But he says here, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I've always thought that was such an interesting way to word, or the wording here was always so interesting in dealing with sexual immorality. You can tell that Paul is trying to emphasize something, but what is it he's trying to emphasize? Why does he say it that way? Why does he say every sin that a man sins is outside the body? And then contrast that with, but when it comes to sexual morality, you're sinning against his own body. It's like it's like he's assuming this is really bad or that this is worse. But when we read that, how do we understand that? In what way is this worse? Well, again, when a man and woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. There is a much deeper experience, a oneness that brings with it deep and lasting consequences. Paul here is warning that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against his body. Why? Because it involves the whole person. That's, number one, what he means by that. When he says that he sins against his own body, Paul is not only thinking of just the physical body, he's thinking of the whole person. So that's what we have to remember, that when it comes to sexual and morality, the person sins against his own self in, in the broadest sense possible. We know that being male and female involves a total person, therefore the sexual experience affects the total personality. When he says every sin that a man does is outside the body, some think here that what Paul is simply doing is quoting what appears to be another Corinthian slogan. We talked about a couple of those last week. And that this, that this uh, slogan here, every sin that a man does is outside the body, is based on their dualistic understanding of the man. Meaning that the body and whatever you do with it is irrelevant. That's, why, that's what he's meaning by, it's outside the body. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, but, basically, but that's not true, this is true. So he's rejecting that notion that every sin is outside the body, and then focuses specifically on sexual immorality and says here that when he sins against himself, he sins against his whole self, which includes his spirit. When it comes to dealing with individuals who are broken, because, uh, broken either when coming come Christ or maybe broken because of sexual immorality or they've been involved in sexual immorality, normally what happens is if you, if you get to know the individual trying to help them, there are there's residual... Problems emotionally. There are residual problems spiritually. We can even throw in the word psychologically if you want. But there's an ongoing set of difficulties. The way, in other words, sexual morality affects how an individual views everything. It affects how. It's not just how you know people say, well, you know, if a man's looking at pornography, it's going to affect the way that he views uh, not only sexual relations but how he views women. That's true. But that's not all that it does. It does much more than that. It diminishes your sense of value that you place on all other people. It also tends to elevate your own passions as being more important than everyone and everything else. It begins to change who you it begins to change your whole value system. And it and it can be very subtle because we're unaware of that. There was a there was way back in the 70s, there was a huge fight that was taking place in several different courts across our nation as there was an attempt to uh, tried to uh, eliminate many of the moral boundaries that existed when it came to the selling of pornographic magazines, uh, strip clubs, those types of things. And there were certain segments in our society, certain states, uh, where, they, where we might say they were much more liberal and those things were flourishing, but there were several, what we would call nowadays, conservative strongholds, or a lot of them, where there were neighborhoods and cities where it was difficult to penetrate as far as this industry. Uh, and they were, they were able to successfully keep them out. And of course, what they paraded around was the idea of free speech and all of that and try to get these things to move. And so there were several studies that were done during that time, um, by the, some by the government, others by some private corporations. Uh, and what they're trying to do is to answer the question, uh, does exposure to sexual material affect a community? And how does it affect the community? And those studies didn't turn out well for the side that was trying to get everyone to liberalize everything. And so what they did was they either tried to ignore those studies, which they did, and get others to ignore the studies, which they did very successfully, or they tried to say that the studies were slanted, or that it didn't matter because uh, our right for free speech, et cetera, was more important. But there was a study that was done, and many of those different studies, and they all kind of came out in the same way. Basically, the main idea was that people become desensitized uh, to various types of... Uh, their sexual morals, they, they become desensitized to the changing tide, uh, they become very uh, different in their view of, of just with the crime of rape and how that crime is viewed and how people are prosecuted. It changed all of that. But within all of those things, there was a very interesting study that was done. It was done with about, uh, I think it was 1,500 people, and these 1,500 people were divided up into, uh, let's see, there's there was four groups. They divided into four groups. And what they did was they, uh, each, of, each of the individuals signed a contract, and they allowed themselves only to be exposed to a certain type of material. So we were rated this way. You had group A. They were only um, viewing G material, whether it was reading or, again, books, magazines, TV, because uh, there was, you know, there wasn't any Internet and all that back then. But uh, they rated them. They only looked at stuff that was G. They, there was another group that was what you call PG. There was another group that was R, another group that was X. What well, they, they had all of them take a test that was uh, a large number of random questions dealing with uh, all kinds of views. And in some of those were questions like um, they would describe where a lady was, uh, lady was raped, but she was wearing this kind of clothing, and then what did you think about that? You know, uh, who do you blame? You know, it, it was it was the fault of the rapist? Was it probably her fault because she shouldn't address that way? You know, those types of things. So they, took the, uh, they all took the exam before the... Uh, before this test uh, period began, which again was six months long, and they kind of graded it out. And most of it was kind of on the same page, uh, fairly conservative in their view of, of crime and uh, sexual crimes and those types of things. So after, after they finished uh, the six-month study, they had to take the same exact test again. The questions were reworded so that they couldn't try to just remember what they had answered, but it was done very well. And what they discovered was that in every single group, except for the G-rated group, in every single other group, the moral views of the participants changed. Every single one of them. And in the, in the PG group, even though a majority of them said that it's never a woman's fault who gets raped, that number changed. And of course the R group, it was a greater percentage that changed, and the X group it was a, a greater. So that was just kind of an idea. So, in every different situation that they encountered, they found that we would call it individuals becoming desensitized to, uh, to, to various kinds of sexual crimes as well as sexual morals. It all went downhill. And what, and what they talked about was, was that it's much more than just about the body. It's much more than just about sex. It affects, it affects an entire community. It can affect our values, the way we think, the way we evaluate things. All of that changes and then it begins to affect the way that we dress, the, what we accept, what we don't accept. Everything begins to change. And it was an incredible study. And, of course, again, people didn't like the results, and so they tried to, they tried to hide that. And it can be a very difficult study to find. But I remember reading it in the book uh, when I was reading uh, some books on this issue um, several years ago. So it's the same thing that Paul has been saying. the same thing that Paul wants us to understand. So that's why, then, when, when our children become exposed to these things, where if that happens we need to become extremely concerned. That is not a small thing. We can never just say, oh, they'll get over it. No, they will not get over it. And because we live in a world where there's a very good chance they are going to be exposed, that's why we must work that much more diligently now to prepare their hearts and minds for what they're going to encounter. We don't want to wait until they're exposed to it and then try to help them through it. You help them to deal with it now. They, they need to become stronger now. They need to be able to process that now. It's not that you have to go into details about anything, but they, they need to have a heart that is strong for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when, they, when, when that comes their way, then they will immediately do what this says, which is what? Flee. Because too often what happens is when it comes to sexual morality, the very first thing that someone does when, when they encounter it, when there's a temptation, is they don't flee, is they usually stop and look. That's what they do. They stop and look. Now you're in trouble. Because you stop and look, you linger a little longer. The image stays in your mind. It doesn't go away. It already begins to affect you. It doesn't mean that the moment you are exposed, and you have a five-second look at, let's say, pornography, that now your life is over. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, it's still, we cannot say it's of no consequence. Something's beginning to happen. And that's why we need to make sure that we are uh, encouraging our children to grow and to think and to learn as we ourselves, because if we don't continue this even as adults, there will be times when there will be temptation and we're not going to flee. We're going to stop and look. And we need to stop doing that. We need to make sure we do, we need to make sure we do everything we can to not be in those situations. Now, the world's not going to understand that and the world's going to accuse us of being a prude and that just goes to the territory. Let them accuse us of being a prude. At the same time, we also need to make sure that we don't, when we come across situations or circumstances, we don't freak out because we're being approved. We, we We need to recognize the world is an ugly place. And we're going to come in contact with some ugly things. And, and there are times that, that we, when it comes to temptation, we flee. When it comes to trying to help those who are involved in this mess, sometimes we see things that we just don't want to see. But we, we need the help of the Lord to overcome that. And we can And so when it comes to this, this messiness that's out there, we need to recognize that we need to prepare ourselves. We don't know when that day is going to come. We need to be focused on the Lord. And part of that is recognizing what the Scripture says and incorporating and absorbing what the Scripture says. Remember that sexual immorality makes the body unholy. Therefore, it makes the body unfit as the temple for God's spirit. That's what we're doing to ourselves. That's why he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Great truths in that verse. Number one, your body is a temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is what? In you. How is the Holy Spirit in you? God has given you the Spirit. He's placed the Spirit of God in you, and because of that, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought at a price, and we know what that price was. It was the death of Christ So therefore, we should glorify God in our body. So that's why it's not just, when we worship God, it's not just worshiping God together here when we gather together and we sing songs and we hear songs being sung and we pray together and we read the word together. We glorify the Lord and that's great. We also glorify the Lord in how we act and what we do with our body when we walk out those doors. Our worship of God is to continue. Because if it doesn't continue with our bodies out there, then it becomes useless and a waste and a fraud in here. There's a claim that many people like to, like to use to wonder degree, you know, they say it in different ways, that no one has any rights over me. You know, you're not my boss. Well, God is our boss. And he wants what is best for us. Remember, the world loves autonomy. They love it. That is their God. That is their idol. We believe in freedom, but we don't believe in absolute autonomy. We believe in the freedom we have in Christ. We believe in the freedom to pursue those things for which we were made, which was to glorify the Lord with our, with our body, with our mind, with our heart. So that opens up all the world to us. But what the world wants is absolute autonomy, because what they want is that which is forbidden, that which is sinful. The world continues to package what they want as being true freedom and being where the joy is, and that we are somehow cosmic killjoys, when that's not the truth. We experience probably much more joy than they do. We have, we possess joy they don't possess. And we recognize that sin may be kind of fun for a season, but it's pretty short and it has long-lasting, devastating consequences. Meanwhile, we experience oftentimes lasting joy that the world is jealous for. And we are sometimes embarrassed to reveal to them the joy we have because they might make fun of us. They're desperate for what we have. They may not like what they see or see how it's packaged and they're going to try to come with all kinds of excuses why what we say we have or what looks like we have that we don't really have it, but they're still watching because they're desperate on the inside. Again, Paul's logic here is that slaves are bought for a price and we are the slaves of Christ. We cannot be lovers of ourselves. We are expected to love and honor Christ the one who made payment for us. So, I have in your notes there are several letters as we kind of summarize all these things that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. Letter A is, as we are created in God's image, that is a foundational truth that Paul builds on. This means something. Because we are created in God's image, it, it helps to explain who we are and what we are and what we are not. We also see in letter B that we are designed to worship God. Remember that worshiping God is not limited to what you just do in a church sanctuary. There's this idea that everything that we do is to be is we worship God. So as you pursue your favorite field of interest, you can do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. That is worship. Remember that if you were to read books on the philosophy of science, it is agreed by even those who are atheistic scientists that the advances in science that were made Hundreds of years ago, all advanced, and and those great leaps took place because men and women were Christians who believed that because God was a God of order, that he had an ordered universe. And as we discovered how his ordered universe works, we did so to his praise and glory. It was always, wow, look how God did that. Wow, this is amazing how God put this together. And we kept discovering things about God. Man's moved away from that, thinking that somehow he gets all the credit and all the glory for this, and that there is no God, and it this becomes ridiculous and absurd after a while. But we need to recognize that whatever you pursue, whether it's in science or business, in your personal life, your hobby, whatever it is, we can do those things as a way to adore and worship God. What we already mentioned today in letter C is there's no separation between the body and the soul. As I already mentioned in letter D, anything a human being does with any part of their being is an expression of worship. So even when we sin, we are worshiping. It's just we're not worshiping God. Letter E, our lifestyle, our preferences, our likes, and our dislikes reveal our true identity. You want to know who you are? What is your identity? Just figure this out. What are your preferences? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? Not to tell you. Letter F, it doesn't matter what the consensus of our culture is. Our ethics flow from the character and the teachings of Christ. So our moral ethics, our sexual ethics that we've been talking about, it flows from the character of Christ, not from our culture. It doesn't matter what our culture says. We're not trying to get back to the 1950s. I'm not even sure the 1950s were all that great anyway. We seem to look at at the past with rose-colored glasses. We need to remember that man has been depraved through the entire history of his race. So if, if there's, there's no rose-colored glasses of any culture except for those that are committed to Christ. And so we need to make sure that we get our, our character from Christ, our ethics from Him. Letter G is we should be unwilling to separate Christian thinking and Christian lifestyle. They are, they, are, they are to be attached at the hip. As I've mentioned to you several times before, I've heard sometimes individuals say this, some Christian men who are in business and maybe they've taking advantage of another individual in, in business and to say, well, you know, business is business. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's blasphemy, I think. This is wrong. You need to do what's right, period, because you belong to Christ. So if you can take advantage of this individual and make an extra thousand bucks, you don't do that. You do the right thing. I don't care if he doesn't know what's going on. It just doesn't matter. We need to do what's right. And letter H, Christ, not our culture, should guide us on how we live. We evaluate culture from the scripture. We do not evaluate the word of God by culture. And we can easily slip into the latter. That's part of the reason why we'll be gathered together as believers. By thinking together. Not that We're not looking to be clones. But by gathering together and thinking together, as we all think independently, it helps to kind of put guardrails so that you know, when, when one group begins to recognize, Bob, you know, you're, start, you're interpreting that according to what the culture says. I need that. You need that. Our spirituality, in a sense, you could say, is almost inseparable from our sexuality or from our sexual practice and behavior, since it happens within the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is our bodies. So let me end this with an illustration. Most of us would be appalled if someone came to the sanctuary and they spray painted all kinds of things uh, on the walls and on the pulpit and on the furniture. We would say, uh, that's, that's, That's wrong. So let's say we came in and someone was we, we caught them red-handed doing it. And they say to you, well, this is really none of your business. This is my church. I can do what I want. We might say, well, but it's my church too. Or even if it isn't your church, we would still say no, but it does matter. We can't imagine an individual doing that. But that's what we do sometimes when we sin with our body. It's like being the individual who comes to church and he's spray-painting, you know, all kinds of stuff on the walls and saying, well, you, it doesn't matter what, what you say or think, this is my church. And we would say it does matter. And Christ is saying it matters. Paul is saying it matters what you do with your body. This building belongs to God. We've set it apart for worship. It is shared by others. Your body belongs to God. It's been set apart by God and it has been se- separated by God for others. For your wife, for your husband, for your family, for Christ our bodies have been set aside by God to worship God. Our bodies, again, may be shared by our spouse who has a vested interest in our health and purity. And so we need to once again rethink the way we view life. We need to rethink the way that we view sexual morality. When we get alone by ourselves and we're allowing our, our minds to drift or go in places they should not go, or we, or we begin to do or think about things that we know we should not be doing, when we begin to linger too long at looking at the wrong thing or, or entertaining the wrong thought, the bottom line is, is that you are bringing Christ and helping him to participate in what you are doing. Some of us would, would, would break down in tears if we ever imagined for a moment that we were making Christ a party to our sin. But we're all guilty of that. We've all done it. And the great and the best news is, with something as horrific as that, Romans tells us, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How can he say that? Because not only because he loves us, it's not because he chooses to look the other way. It's because he's punished Christ for our sin. He has taken out his wrath on him because we have the audacity to do the things that we've done. And all we can do is bow before him and say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, Father, we know that all of us are guilty of sin. Perhaps, Lord, many of us are guilty of some kind of sexual immorality. Maybe we've not been with a prostitute. Maybe we've not pursued other men or women. Maybe we've not been involved in pornography. But, Father, it's hard to imagine in the day and age which we live in that no one has succumbed, even in their thoughts, to one of these areas, even if briefly. We know, Lord, it's a powerful sin. It has great strength, and it just doesn't go away. And Father, first of all, we thank you as believers for forgiving us of our wretchedness. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, Father, to hate our sin, Not just sin in general, but to hate our sin. And to hate it with all of our mind and our strength and our soul and our body. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us a strong desire to flee sexual immorality. That we may honor you with our bodies as well as our minds and our spirit. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today that are caught up in any kind of sexual immorality... I do pray, Lord, that you would lay on their heart a great heaviness of guilt. A lingering guilt, Lord, that will not go away. Because, Father, we know that they've become enslaved. And the freedom that they so desperately need can only come through Christ. And We pray, Lord, that the guilt would press them to the point that where, Lord, they, are, they feel themselves forced to come to you and to come clean. Father, we ask... As we know that you will, because you said you would never turn away a broken and contrite heart, that not only you would forgive them, but that you would restore them. And if perhaps, Lord, we can be of help in that area, help us, Father, with your wisdom and with your grace to help them in that way. We pray also, Lord, that you would keep us from temptation. Keep us, Father, from this temptation. Help us, Father, to protect our children from this temptation, but also help us to prepare them for this temptation. Because, Father, We all can see the uh, telltale designs of our culture that is going to continue and perhaps it's going to get much worse and we must prepare for battle. So Father, we thank you again for your undying love, for your unbelievable patience with us and again for the fact that you love us so much that you are willing to forgive us of our unrighteousness for the sake of Christ. We do thank you and ask these things in his name. Amen.